Welcome to Fierce City, a podcast where we will talk about the people, places and events that shaped the greatest city in the world. I'm Satu. And I'm PJ. And we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser known history of London. London has seen more than its fair share of big personalities. Its restaurants, hotels, theatres and brothels have provided the stage for some of the most scandalous and emotional stories in its history. Not all of these stories end well, but they have legacies which endure for lifetimes. Before researching this podcast, Oscar Wilde, to me, was known mainly for his witty quotes and his status as one of history's most famous gay men. I read a picture of a Dorian Gray and watched the movie version of The Importance of Being Earnest, but these literary achievements always seemed secondary to me, to his life as a pioneering gay man in London. Disclaimer, we're going to use the word gay in this podcast as a kind of catch-all, and not because it was actually used as a word in Victorian times. Wilde would have probably appreciated my literary ignorance, as he quoted, I put all my genius into my life, I put only my talent into my works. However, an important part of Wilde's life didn't really play out in a way most people would consider genius. Our story today centres around Oscar Wilde and the court cases which saw his ruin. It is a tale of unfortunate love, misplaced pride, gay rights and a modern man stuck in Victorian London. So come along with us as we journey back to discover the trials of Oscar Wilde. Like many key Londoners, Wilde was born elsewhere. He was born in 1854 in Dublin and grew up in Ireland. His mother was an Irish patriot and his dad was a fairly big deal, being the eye doctor to Queen Victoria. Wilde was a big strapping man and he also developed a flamboyant personality and a dedication to a life of beauty, comfort and the social whirl. He went to Trinity College in Dublin, where he was described by his friend and crush, Lily Langtry, as standing out from the crowd, always wearing flamboyant suits. He got into the theory of aestheticism at university, which is basically all about the enjoyment of a lovely decadent life, putting art above nature and not worrying about the moral content of a book or a painting. After university, he dithered a bit, getting engaged to a girl called Florence, who ditched him to marry Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula, instead. By 1881, Wilde moved to London, where his greatest successes and failures would take place. After a successful lecture tour in America and writing his first play, he married the daughter of a fairly wealthy Irish lawyer in 1884. Constance Wilde was no demure and quiet beard to Oscar. They had a real and loving relationship, and had two children together, setting up home in Chelsea. Wilde's writing career flourished, and he published his novel The Picture of Dorian Gray, and a series of hit plays culminating in The Importance of Being Earnest, which is probably still on in London somewhere now. Wilde's legacy is at least partly to do with having written a handful of witty, silly plays about people being unable to tell apart two men with identical moustaches. Wilde lived the aesthetic life, spending the money he earned from successful plays and speaking tours on lavish entertaining. The best, and probably worst, moment of Wilde's life occurred in 1891 when he met Lord Alfred Douglas, known to his friends and critical podcasters as (laughs) Bosey. If you haven't seen a picture of Bosey, I think Satter and I can confirm that he is a Victorian super hottie. Would like to second that. He represented the triple threat for Wilde, with Bosey being a member of the aristocracy, a poet, and was super good looking. 
Bosie adored Wilde too. Wilde was the antithesis of his horrible father, who we will come to, and Wilde was the kind of generous and loving man who just seemed to get Bosie. This was not Wilde's first foray into same-sex relations. His future BFF, Robbie Ross, became Wilde's boarder in the family home when Robbie was 18 and Wilde was in his early 30s. They inevitably hooked up. And Wilde went on to become part of the gay London scene, which, as you can imagine, for the time, was not out and proud, but rather lived in the dark and secret parts of society. It's important to remember that identifying as gay or bisexual, or anything other than fitting into the traditional role of a man or a woman, was not really a thing in Victorian times. Of course, sexuality and gender were as real then as they are today, but it was that society and the law had no place for them. Wilde and his modern stance on sexuality existed at a time when a net had been descending on gay men. When the Liberal government got into power during the second half of the 19th century, they began to focus on social reform. Our ideas about liberalism and social reform make this sound like the times were good for gay people. But in Victorian London, both of these things were actually working against them. This surprised Satter and I when we came to learn that liberals could work against the gays. They're the good guys, usually. One focus was tightening the law surrounding the criminal acts which harmed women and children. Being a liberal then meant having a firm sense of morality and of right and wrong. This meant more interference with people's private lives in order to stop abuse and harm. And one casualty of this moral protectionism was gay people. Side note here, one of the main proponents of this kind of social reform was a famous journalist called W.T. Stead, although he wasn't famous to me. (laughs) Uh, He wrote many articles slamming the loose morals of the age, and in order to demonstrate how easy it was to buy sex, he arranged for the purchase of a 13-year-old girl, which kind of backfired on him and he was in prison for three years. This bad luck continued and he went down with the Titanic a few decades later. The Criminal Law Amendment Act 1885 had a strapline of being for the protection of women and girls and was designed to punish sexual offenders and establish an age of consent for sex. The legislation started talking about an age of consent at 12, but thankfully it ended up at 16. Prostitution was also clamped down on, and what was brought up from the underbelly of society with this mismatch of reform was gay relations – as prostitution was obviously the most visible form of gay supply and demand in Victorian London. A new part of the law was introduced at the last minute, which added the ambiguous criminal offence of gross indecency by men, which carried a punishment of two years in jail. Gross indecency wasn't defined, but it was basically a catch-all to sweep up any kind of same-sex relations between men. Women were not legislated against. Women are always having a good time. (laughs) This is my formal apology from women to, to gay men, our brethren. So the public spirit and the law now reflected a moralistic attitude, which set boundaries and put people into categories. Oscar Wilde, however, was not going to be put into a neat moral box. Initially, everyone was terrified that a law which criminalised people's private lives could become a blackmailer's charter, but the panic died down as it usually does, and if we fast forward to 1895, ten years after the law was passed, it was arguably the height of Wilde's fame. His play An Ideal Husband got rave reviews, and his new play, The Importance of Being Earnest, was acclaimed, and the Prince of Wales came to the opening night. Wilde probably felt untouchable. 
Lots of illegal things were, and still are, done by the moneyed elite, and Wilde probably quite reasonably felt that he could get away with his life as it was. But he had the incredible bad luck to have fallen for the son of one of the absolute worst men in England, the Marquess of Queensbury. Boo. Queensbury was a bully and a brute. Bosey said that he actually only saw him 20 times in his entire childhood. And the letters Queensbury wrote to Bosey as an adult show an incredible contempt for his child. Despite his total indifference in childhood and outright disgust in adulthood, Queensbury was a classic abuser in that he wanted to be the only person who got to dish it out. Queensbury was a boxer, and the modern Queensbury rules in boxing are traced back to him. He openly abused his wife, and the last straw was when he decided that his mistress should move in with them for ease of access, as it were. She quickly divorced him. Queensbury terrorised his other two children, writing nasty letters to one of their wives and monumentally throwing his toys out of the pram when his son became a lord, a title which was denied to him. Bosey had two brothers. One was his quite sympathetic brother Percy, who helped him out during the few trials, and he had another brother who was also gay and died under rather suspicious circumstances after a hunting accident. Even if Bosey had chosen the best female match in all of London it probably wouldn't have been good enough for his mean father. When Queensbury wasn't terrorising everyone around him, he directed his venom at trying to bring down the church. But when he caught wind of the allegations of Bosey carrying on with Wilde, Queensbury had a new grudge match that would come to divert his entire attention. Bosey was no shy flower himself, and a furious exchange of telegrams that reached fever pitch as Queensbury threatened to beat Bosey if he kept seeing Wilde, or rather kept being seen with Wilde. PJ's going to read you one of these absolutely insane telegrams. Your intimacy with this man Wilde must either cease or I will disown you and stop all money supplies. With my own eyes, I saw you in the most loathsome and disgusting relationship as expressed by your manner and expression. No wonder people are talking as they are. Also, I now hear on good authority, but this may be false, that his wife is petitioning to divorce him for sodomy and other crimes. Is this true, or do you not know of it? If I thought the actual thing was true, and it became public property, I should be quite justified in shooting him on sight. Your disgusted so-called father. A great Queensbury there, PJ. Thank you. Douglas's reply to his father's letter came in a pithier telegram. What a funny little man you are. Queensbury showed up at Wilde's house and tried to scream him into submission. Wilde made a living out of putting down bullies through his wit. Queensbury was accompanied by a brutish boxer mate designed to intimidate Wilde, but he calmly asked Queensbury to leave, saying, I don't know what the Queensbury rules are, but the Oscar Wilde rules are to shoot on sight. Queensbury was becoming increasingly and obsessively belligerent. He had to be forcibly barred from the opening night of The Importance of Being Earnest, where he planned to publicly denounce the playwright in the theatre. He settled for leaving a phallic bouquet of vegetables at the stage door instead of the customary flowers. Matters reached fever pitch when, a few days later, Wilde walked into his club, the Albemarle Club, and found the Marquess's card on which he had scrawled the words to Oscar Wilde, Posing Somdomite. Yep, that's how he went to spell Sodomite. (laughs) 
It was clear that Queensbury would not leave Wilde and Bosey alone, and conversely, Wilde and Bosey were determined not to leave each other alone. A fight to bring matters to a final conclusion was inevitable. Of course, Queensbury had said worse things around town, and written worse things to Bosey in private letters. But what Wilde now had was a public and direct written statement. Wilde consulted his lawyers before, and so now it probably looked like he held the evidence he needed to finally bring Queensbury down. Wilde wrote to his friend Robbie Ross, Bosie's father has left a card at my club with some hideous words on it. I don't see anything now but a criminal prosecution. My whole life seems ruined by this man. Wilde considered leaving for Paris. Unfortunately, as was often the case, he was behind on his hotel bill and the manager held his luggage hostage until he could pay it. Your world is just as good as my Queensbury. Thank you. He spoke with Robbie and consulted his lawyer the very next day. Everyone initially seemed to be for the prosecution of Queensbury and bringing him down once and for all. Bosey enthusiastically encouraged Wilde to prosecute, saying that his family would pay for everything just to finally get justice for the rest of them. Wilde's lawyer said they had a strong case. I can imagine that it would be easy to delude yourself that the issue at hand was Queensbury's insult, rather than the possibility that anybody would actually look to the truth. In any event, Wilde was mates with royalty and everyone hated Queensbury. They were all looking for a way to put the Marquis in his place, and this seemed like the perfect way. However, they all underestimated Queensbury's hunger for a fight, and sadly ignored the inconvenient fact that behind the smoke of the words was the spark of truth about Oscar Wilde's sexuality. Wilde's lawyer instructed a very eminent QC, Sir Edward Clark, who by all accounts was a decent man. Clark had the benefit of not having emotional turmoil and intimidation at play, and he cut through to the core of the matter. He told Wilde that he would only take on the case if he swore on his honour as a gentleman that the allegations were completely untrue. In no uncertain terms, Wilde swore he was as clean as a whistle. Of course, he wasn't. Wilde may have wanted the whole Queensbury drama done, but he was also working with a conflict in his own identity that he probably couldn't reconcile with the fact that he frequented the underbelly of Victorian society and paid often very generously for gay sex with young men. He had the cover of art and poetry and literature, which was the perfect breeding ground for fluidity and breaking down conventional norms. Wilde, along with probably most gay people of the time, had a confusing relationship with their own sexuality. However, what his lawyer Clark understood, and what Wilde underestimated, was that often the law doesn't care for confusion, and rather it drills down to what is ugly and what's factual. Two days after Wilde discovered Queensbury's calling card, the Marquis was arrested and sent to Great Marlborough Street Police Court. Whilst Queensbury was on bail before his trial, he set about getting all the evidence he needed to prove Wilde's sexuality. When his lawyers sent out a private detective to find witnesses against Wilde, they found out about Alfred Taylor, an underworld associate of Wilde's. At this man's flat, the detective found a list of names, the rent boys Wilde had paid money to. These boys were rounded up and pressured and bribed into giving evidence for the prosecution. It was becoming apparent from the other side's case that Queensbury had an awful lot of mud to sling at Wilde. Many of Wilde's friends, who perhaps had less lofty ideas of their sexual preferences, begged Wilde not to take on Queensbury. 
both Wilde and Bosey preferred to think of these friends as being weak in the face of a fight, rather than see that they were making the point that, with this particular issue, Wilde was throwing stones while sitting in a particularly fragile glass house. As the evidence stacked up against Wilde and in favour of Queensbury, Bosey stopped him from backing down from the prosecution. Always careless, Bosey had let some of Oscar's really beautiful love letters to him fall into the hands of one of the Rent Boys. If Wilde retreated, he would have to leave London, maybe forever, but he would be safe. He stayed. In the month between Queensbury's arrest and the trial beginning, whilst Queensbury was setting his case, Wilde and Bosey had been holidaying. On the 3rd of April 1895, the trial began, in a dingy little courtroom at the Old Bailey, which was pulled down only a few years after the trial. We have the transcripts of all of the Wilde trials, and so Wilde is laid bare, with no chance for an edit. Even so, when he gives evidence, it is by far and away the most tantalising and interesting parts of the drudgery of the legal cases. He was indeed a genius at life. In this first case, it should be remembered that Wilde was on the attack. He didn't need to bring an expensive court case, and this was his day in court to ruin Queensbury. However, from the very outset, it became clear that the case was going to be about Wilde defending himself against being branded as gay. Queensbury had, in many ways, already won. The most stark thing about the case is that Wilde and his legal team were saying from the off that the act of being gay, which was the libel, was abominable and the gravest of all offences. It does feel a bit wrong that one of our prominent gay heroes from history stands up and says in no uncertain terms about the suggestion he had gay experiences, that there is no truth whatever in any of them. The Wild case was built on a foundation that artists were extraordinary and worked in a way which could be easy to misunderstand. Wilde's barrister, Edward Clark, tried to get ahead of one of the issues that Queensbury would bring up, which was a letter he wrote to Bosey. The letter opened with, My own boy, your sonnet is quite lovely, and it's a marvel that these red rose-leaf lips of yours should be made no less for the madness of music and song than for the madness of kissing. Your slim, gilt soul walks between passion and poetry. Imagine someone writing you a letter like that. I prefer dinner, personally. <laughs> Wilde defended this letter as being part of the work towards it becoming a sonnet, and it eventually did make its way into a publication, which also had a story in it about a priest bedding a young altar boy, so that didn't look very good. The lawyer of Queensbury was Edward Carson QC. Carson was in fact an old mate of Wilde's from his days at Trinity College, and because of this he very nearly did not take the case. When Wilde found out Carson was going to be examining him, he said, No doubt he will perform his task with all the added bitterness of an old friend. This started when Carson caught Wilde in a lie about his age, straight out of the gate. Wilde was not in fact 39 but 41, somehow making him seem even older than Bosey's 24. Carson and Wilde came to blows over the idea of whether art could be moral or not. Carson read out parts of A Picture of Dorian Gray and called bits of it disgusting. Wilde said, I do not believe that any book or work of art has any effect whatever on morality. When asked if Dorian Gray could be deemed perverted, he replied, only to brutes and illiterates. After another part of Dorian Gray was read out in court, the following exchange. 
Do you mean to say that the passage describes the natural feeling of one man towards another? It would be the influence produced by a beautiful personality. A beautiful person? I said a beautiful personality. You can describe it as you like. Dorian Gray's was a most remarkable personality. May I take it that you, as an artist, have never known the feeling described here? I have never allowed any personality to dominate my art. Then you have never known the feeling you described? No. It is a work of fiction. So far as you're concerned, you have no experience as to it being a natural feeling? I think it is perfectly natural for any artist to admire intensely and love a young man. It is an incident in the life of almost every artist. Yes, but let's go over it phrase by phrase. I quite admit that I adored you madly. What do you say to that? Have you ever adored a young man madly? No, not madly. I prefer love. That is a higher form. Never mind about that. Let us keep down to the level we are on now. I have never given adoration to anybody except myself. And with that, there was loud laughter in the gallery. When it came to the argument that Wilde was gay, as demonstrated by his work, Carson was losing. Day one was over, and in my opinion, it was 1-0 to Wilde. Luckily for Queensbury, and for his lawyer Carson, their case had far less to do with Oscar Wilde's work and his literary expression, and had much more to do with the several young boys bribed and blackmailed to testify against Wilde. Day two began, and buoyed by his performance, Wilde was in a confident mood. Carson began by asking Wilde if he was familiar with a man named Taylor, who was arrested with others as a notorious pimp. Wilde did not deny his acquaintance, but played dumb about knowing what Taylor and co were up to. Wilde went for his own brand of honesty, still thinking he had immunity as an artist. He said he liked the company of young men, and bought them presents. He was not shy about admitting he kept company with men not in his class, and said, The pleasure to me was being with those who are young, bright, happy, careless and carefree. I do not like the sensible, and I do not like the old. Carson kept suggesting improper activity with young men and him taking them to dinners at the Savoy, at Kettner's and other Soho restaurants, all in private rooms, apparently plying them with cold champagne and whiskey sodas. Well kept up the denials, but he forgot himself and replied to a question which, for once, did not lead to laughter and applause. In reply to a question about one particular young man, Wilde found himself rattled. Did you ever kiss him? Oh dear, no. He was a peculiarly plain boy. He was, unfortunately, extremely ugly. I pitied him for it. And was that the reason why you didn't kiss him? Oh, Mr Carson, you are impertinently insolent. Did you say, in support of your statement, that you never kissed him? No. It is a childish question. Did you ever put that forward as a reason why you never kissed the boy? Not at all. Why, sir, did you mention that boy was extremely ugly? For this reason. If I were asked why I did not kiss a doormat, I should say because I do not like to kiss doormats. I do not know why I mentioned that he was ugly, except that I was stung by the insolent question you put to me, and the way you have insulted me throughout this hearing. Am I to be cross-examined because I do not like it? Why did you mention his ugliness? It is ridiculous to imagine that any such thing could have occurred under any circumstances. Then why did you mention his ugliness, I ask you? Perhaps you insulted me by an insulting question. Was that a reason why you should say the boy was ugly? Why? Why? 
You, Why? You sting me and insult me and try to unnerve me. And at times one says things flippantly when one ought to speak more seriously. I admit it. Then you said it flippantly. Oh, yes, it was a flippant answer. Even reading out all of Queensbury's mad and offensive letters after this couldn't bring the case back on track. Bosey had wanted to speak himself at the trial, and he had lawyers briefed and ready in court. Clark, however, didn't want Bosey to take the stand, and this was probably an excellent idea, as Bosey didn't have the wit or patience to deal with questions like Wilde did. Wilde also wanted to protect Bosey, his one love, and so he didn't want him to testify in court and potentially incriminate himself. The court broke for lunch, and Wilde made matters worse by coming back late from lunch, saying that the restaurant clock was broken. In fact, it was probably because crisis meetings were taking place. It had all got a bit ugly and real. After lunch, Carson began his opening speech and noted the contrast between Wilde's lofty ideals as a poet and his taste for spending time with poorly educated teenage boys. Wilde's explanation that he didn't see rank didn't really wash with Carson, and it doesn't wash with a modern reader either. He probably has no problem with Wilde being gay, but may have a problem with him paying poor, desperate young men for sex. The day ended halfway through Carson's speech, and it was now one all, and not looking promising. The next morning, Carson continued his opening statement, not having yet called a single witness to prove that Wilde was gay. Wilde and Clark were absent from court, having discussions about the way forward. Clark said to Wilde that if he wanted to escape to France, he should go immediately, while Clark bought time for him. Wilde would not go. Instead, Clark stormed into court, tugged at Carson's sleeve, and explained that Wilde was giving up. Carson agreed, and Clark had to rather embarrassingly explain to the court that Wilde was withdrawing from the prosecution and it was fair to say that he posed as a sodomite. The judge and jury corroborated the not guilty verdict for Queensbury, and there was a round of applause in court that the judge did nothing to stem. Queensbury had won, and it could have been left there, but Queensbury was set on ruining Wilde. By the time Judge Collins had made it to his club, Queensbury's solicitors had already written to the Director of Public Prosecutions, giving them all their evidence in order to put the wheels in motion to prosecute Wilde. As Wilde dithered about whether or not to leave, the last trains and boats to France were departing, and all of his escape routes were cut off. At five o'clock, he heard there was a warrant out for his arrest. It was accepted that if Wilde had left, the whole thing would have probably blown over and the government would have been saved the embarrassment of having to go after Wilde. Why Wilde stayed, I do not know. Pride? Perhaps because Queensbury wrote to say that he would track him down if he left the country with Bosey and shoot him? Or perhaps he was paralysed with depression at how his life came crashing down so quickly. Wilde was arrested at the Cadogan Hotel and he was so much a pariah at this point that he nearly made a publication bankrupt just because he was seen to hold a yellow book while leaving the hotel, and people thought, wrongly, that it was a famous magazine called The Yellow Book. Everyone promptly boycotted. The repercussions were wildly felt amongst all the gay men in London, and there was a panic. Supposedly, the day after Wilde's arrest, 600 gentlemen crossed the channel instead of the usual 60. Wilde's great friend Robbie Ross was with him when he was arrested and had his name in the papers and so he was forced to leave for France himself. Back in London, 
Wilde's name was scrubbed from the boards announcing his performances and plays, and tours were cancelled. His friends melted away. Wilde was refused bail and was sent to Holloway Prison. He was uncomfortable there, but buoyed up by his love for Bosey, who visited frequently. The only other person to stick by his side was his barrister Clark, who offered to defend Wilde pro bono, as his fragile fortunes were now ruined by the costs in his unsuccessful libel case. Bosey soon went to France as well, on the insistence of both Clark and Wilde, as he wanted to try and help by explaining that Bosey had been in fact the one with the rent boys as accused in the other trial. The lawyers were freaking out and told Bosey to stop talking as it was just making everything worse. At the time, the only thing worse to Wilde than him going to prison would be Bosey being incarcerated as well. And so he agreed and Bosey fled. Trial 2 began on Friday the 26th of April 1895, just three weeks after the end of the libel trial. It was again at the Old Bailey, but was now in the larger central criminal court, and the gallery was packed. Carson did not want to prosecute Wilde further, and so the Crown brought in a barrister named Mr Gill, who amazed nobody. For technical reasons that were later abandoned, both Taylor, the notorious pimp discussed earlier, and Wilde were prosecuted together, and there were 25 different counts of indecency levelled against them both, featuring no less than six different men. Taylor helped introduce young men to rich older men, and he could navigate between the upper classes and lower classes, having frittered away a substantial inheritance, leaving him to find more entrepreneurial ways to make money. Taylor rented four rooms in Westminster, at Little College Street, which were described as having the windows heavily draped and with candlelight throughout the day. The landlady of the rooms testified to say that there were tea parties going on. (gasps) Tea parties! It's scandalous indeed. Go on all the time with only gentlemen being invited. The location of 13 College Street, as it was then, is now offices for the House of Lords. When asked if the area was seedy, Wilde replied, I do not know. I do know that it was near the Houses of Parliament. Throwing shade there on some... Uh... <laughs> some of the characters from our Downing Street episode, maybe. The young men who were corolled into testifying against Wilde painted a damning picture of Wilde and Taylor. They were, in the large, rent boys of lower classes, and said things like, dodgy Cockney accent alert, If any old gentleman with money took a fancy to me, I was agreeable. Oh God. I was terribly hard up. Governor. <laughs> and I was asked by Wilde to imagine that I was a woman and that he was my lover. Another man, called Wood, described himself as a bit of a waster and was asked to remove the thing he was chewing whilst he was in the witness box. Frederick Atkins, one of the men, described himself as a clerk and a sometimes comedian. Wilde apparently took Atkins to Paris, and whilst Atkins said that nothing happened with him, he did say that when he got back from the Moulin Rouge, he found Oscar Wilde in bed with another man. Together with the named men, there were also unknown rent boys at the Savoy, which two Savoy workers claimed to have walked in on. In fact, these were the rent boys that Bosey had privately owned up to being with. The prosecution had one witness who was not a rent boy, Edward Shelley, who worked at Wilde's publishers. He described being taken out for dinner by Wilde, and then later on being ridiculed at his work by being called Mrs Wilde. A lot was being thrown at Wilde, and much of it was sticking. When Wilde came to the stand, he still had some fight in him, but he was wounded, 
and now had to come up with answers which were not about debating the finer points of literature, but about his grubby affairs with several young men. Wilde didn't deny knowing the men, or dining with them, or in fact giving them presents. But when it came to whether he engaged in anything approaching sexual activity, he declared, There is no truth in any one of the allegations of indecent behaviour. The prosecutor tried again to attack Wilde in relation to the things he wrote, which was a misstep, as this was Wilde in his element. Gill read out a poem Bosie had written, and it was from this that the most famous quote from the trials comes, The love that dare not speak its name. This famous saying may be attributed to Wilde, but it was in fact just him repeating Bosie's words and giving the poem justification. Wilde explained that it was the noblest form of affection. There is nothing unnatural about it. It is intellectual, and it repeatedly exists between an elder and a younger man, when the elder man has intellect, and the younger man has all the joy, hope, and glamour of life before him. That it should be so, the world does not understand. The world mocks at it, and sometimes puts one in the pillory for it. This time, the public gallery's applause was in his favour. To my mind, this wasn't Wilde cleverly standing up in defence of gay people. His explanation was specific to his situation alone, and even more specific to the situation between him and Bosey. He's basically saying that he and Bosey have a special relationship, but this doesn't mean it applies to every single gay relationship. Later, when Gill tried to connect this expression to the other men in the case, Gill asked and Wilde carefully responded... With regard to your friendship towards the persons I have mentioned, may I take it, Mr Wilde, that it was, as you describe, a deep affection of an elder man for a younger? Certainly not. One feels that once in one's life, and only once. So Wilde may have carved out a special place for Bosie, but he soon after repeated that there is not a particle of truth in that part of the evidence which has alleged improper conduct. In summing up, Wilde's barrister Clark's main argument was that the jury should not believe those he saw as in the gutter of society, and said, Is it likely that a man of Mr Wilde's cleverness would put himself so completely in the power of these harpies? Furthermore, Clark contended that it could not be true, as if Wilde was doing something so awful, surely he would deny their connection and be a lot more discreet. It was a good speech, and ended with... I trust that the result of your deliberations will be to gratify those thousands of hopes which are hanging upon your decision, and in clearing him will clear society from a stain. Wilde was moved to tears by Clark's speech, and sent him over a note of thanks. Before the jury went out to deliberate, Mr Justice Charles was to give them a direction in order to help them make their decision within the confines of the law. On balance, I think Charles was on Wilde's side, reminding the jury that some of the witnesses were reckless, unreliable, unscrupulous and untruthful, and being a low class of morality, whereas Wilde was a man of highly intellectual gifts. The judge agreed that literature played no part in any of it, and extended the idiom that judge no man by his books to also include judge no man by the characters he has created. Justice Charles ended his direction by propping up the old posh white man club by saying that Wilde belonged to a class of people of whom difficult to imagine such an offence. The jury went on to deliberate for three hours and 40 minutes and came back to say that they could see no chance of agreement. The judge called it a very long deliberation and just like the jury was probably quite happy to pass the buck. 
Nine out of the 25 counts came in as not guilty for technical reasons, but the rest were still live and looming over Wilde. He got a reprieve. He was not guilty or innocent, and his fate would need to wait for another day. Meanwhile, the Solicitor General, Mr Francis Lockwood, received a number of appeals that the trial should now just cease against Wilde. The most surprising of these new champions was Edward Carson, the defence lawyer from the libel trial. He apparently said to Lockwood, Can you not let up on the fellow now? He suffered a great deal. Lockwood reluctantly refused. The case was just too high profile now, and also there were rumours in France that because the Prime Minister and other high-up people were mentioned in passing in the first trial, which was in the Queensbury letters where he actually slagged them all off, that if the whole thing went away, then it could easily be seen as a cover-up. On top of that, Lockwood's nephew by marriage was named in the cases, and there was always the threat that Queensbury could blackmail the lot of them if he wanted to. They needed to bring the wild matter to a head, either by conviction or his innocence. Wilde was allowed bail before his second trial. Bosie's brother Percy put up half the money, and the other half, incredibly, came from a reverend who had only met Wilde twice, but was a man of convictions and believed Wilde deserved a fair trial. The poor reverend was threatened with stoning outside his Bloomsbury house. But getting out on bail was only the first step. Wilde went to a hotel in St Pancras, but was quickly turfed out by the manager, after threats from some of Queensbury's hired thugs. These thugs followed Wilde across the city as he tried to find somewhere to sleep, threatening to smash up anywhere that would take him in. In the end, Wilde realised he would have to swallow his pride and go back home to his family. He had not spoken to his brother Willie for a year and a half, but when he came knocking at the door, he and his wife Lily let him in and set up a camp bed. Not quite the Savoy there. Wilde's mother had strong views on the situation and she told him, and you'll be pleased to hear not in an Irish accent, (laughs) if you stay, even if you go to prison, you will always be my son. It will make no difference to my affection. But if you go, I will never speak to you again. Wilde had given no sign that he was likely to flee, but if he had been contemplating it, this was surely the end of that. Percy, Bosie's brother, on the other hand, said... It will practically ruin me if I lose all that money at the present moment, but if there is a chance even of conviction, in God's name let him go. Wilde's old friend Ada Leveson rescued him from his camp bed indignity and set him up with fractionally more style in her son's disused nursery. He had some friends left, and he even had a visit from Toulouse-Lautrec, who did a painting of him. From here, he wrote to Bosie for comfort. Bosie was still in France, writing letters to the French newspapers about the situation and generally failing to lie low. The third and final trial began on Monday the 20th of May, about two months since the whole thing started, and it began with a broken wild, both financially and emotionally. Lockwood, who was an MP and a QC, was now the prosecutor in charge and was known for fighting hard for his convictions. Their judge was Mr Justice Wills, who was known as a staunch moralist, caring more for these morals than for the law. Further, the Crown were now able to get rid of their rubbish old witnesses and focus on a more streamlined case against Wilde. The decks were stacked. Notionally, the Taylor and the Wilde cases were still connected, but they were tried separately with Taylor going first. After a two-day hearing, Taylor was convicted on all counts. 
Wilde's trial, the main event, began on Wednesday the 22nd of May. The witnesses were clearly better coached this time, and it was revealed that they were being put up on the dime of the prosecution. Despite this, Clark did his best to discredit the witnesses. For example, noting that the Savoy chambermaid wore glasses in court and asked her why, to which she explained it was so that she could recognise people in court. He then asked if she wore her glasses at work, and she said, Oh dear, no. Clark pleaded for the jury's sympathy, saying that this was effectively the third time Wilde had gone before a jury, and that I feel a little soreness at the treatment of Wilde, who has heroically fought against the accusations. The most interesting part of the trial, as ever, was Wilde. He did not, however, have the same spirit and had to sit during his examination. He repeated his absolute denial of the claims of indecency, but he did not let go his love for Bosey, saying, The charges are founded on sand. Our friendship is founded on rock. Around this point of the cross-examination, Queensbury entered the court and stood looming at the back. Wilde had clearly had enough of the questioning, and all the old ground had been well-trodden. Clark again gave an impassioned closing speech, whilst Lockwood warned the jury that an innocent verdict would enable another vice, as detestable, as abominable, to raise its head with unblushing effrontery in this city. In Justice Will's summing up to the jury, he feigned impartiality, but was really clearly on the side of the Crown, and said, I would rather try the most shocking murder case than be engaged in a case of this description. He went on to discredit Wilde and say, I may be dull myself, but speaking personally, I cannot see the extreme beauty of the language said to have been used. Justice Wills continued to be cynical of Wilde, and it came to no surprise after two hours of deliberation that the jury came back with a guilty verdict on every single count. The sentence laid down by the judge against Wilde was not only a personal sentence, but one against every gay person in London. It is no use for me to address you. People who can do these things must be dead to all sense of shame, and one cannot hope to produce any effect upon them. It is the worst case I have ever tried. That you, Taylor, kept a kind of male brothel, it is impossible to doubt. And that you, Wilde, have been the centre of a circle of extensive corruption of the most hideous kind among young men, it is equally impossible to doubt. I shall, under the circumstances, be expected to pass the severest sentence that the law allows. In my judgment, it is totally inadequate for a case such as this. The sentence of the court is that each of you be imprisoned and kept to hard labour for two years. At this point, Wilde asked if he could say something, but before he could finish his sentence, he was whisked away. Wilde was sent back to Holloway and then to Pentonville Prison. He was issued with a suit of prison clothes with big arrows printed on them, and he was apparently lucky because his suit was new. His punishment of two years of hard labour included walking on a treadmill for six hours a day for absolutely no reason. He slept on a wooden bed without a mattress and was underfed, suffering both malnutrition and diarrhoea in a cell without plumbing. Another terrible part of the punishment was that the prisoners were not allowed to speak to each other. Total silence was observed and breaches were punished. For the first three months, he was allowed no visits and no letters. He was not allowed books or pens or paper. Every prisoner given a sentence of hard labour experienced this, not just Wilde, 
and what's even worse is that children were imprisoned alongside adults. The architecture of Wilde's formerly fabulous life crumbled while he was in jail. His wife began divorce proceedings and changed her name. His mother passed away, which he only found out weeks later. Bossy, who was on a yacht in France for most of the time, enjoying his usual lifestyle, attempted to publish an article quoting some of Wilde's letters. Wilde refused to allow it. He was attempting to stop Constance from divorcing him and was writing heartfelt letters of apology to her. Bosey could ruin this last chance of social, financial and familial salvation for Wilde by writing articles admitting that the accusations of indecency had all been true. While Wilde sat in prison, hungry, cold, made to walk on the treadmill and kept in isolation from the world, Wilde's love for Bosey began to falter. Bosey's posing was a world away from the hell Wilde found himself in. He was convinced he would die, or at least go mad in prison, while Bosey sunned himself in Capri. Bosey wrote to a friend, I am not in prison, but I think I suffer as much as Oscar, and in fact more, just as I am sure that he would have suffered more if he had been free and I in prison. Doesn't he think my life is just as much ruined as his, and so much sooner? After two years of physical labour and mental torture that left him traumatised, Wilde was finally released. His truer friends, including Robbie Ross, welcomed him back, handing him the £800 they'd gotten together and packed him off to France as soon as possible. Happily, Queensbury did not get to enjoy the rest of his life from his high horse. Yay! He also lost his friends over the trials, and his entire family hated his guts. He was forced to sell his grand house and his art collection. It's not quite his just desserts for his incredible career of violence, abuse and hatred, but few villains in this world get any punishment at all, so we will take it. When it comes to the retribution of Wilde himself, he never saw that in his lifetime. But earlier this year in 2017, Wilde, along with all others convicted of homosexual crimes, were posthumously pardoned. And so, when Wilde's barrister Edward Clark said these words during his closing statement of one of the trials, he wasn't wrong. Innocence has the courage and faith in the ultimate judgment of mankind. Oscar Wilde's plays and books made him famous, but his trials made him notorious. While they destroyed his body and broke his heart, he might have enjoyed the lasting fame they gave him and the change in public opinion that eventually came about. His devotion to fine living, the arts, conversation, beautiful people and general fun make him one of the greatest bon vivants of the London social scene, ever, as well as a tragic victim of persecution. To honour Oscar, think of him next time you raise a glass of cold champagne. To me now, Oscar Wilde's legacy isn't as a gay hero leading the way for gay rights. He could never have done that. What he did was just as brave though, he was a modern man who did not compromise when it came to being himself and standing up for his peculiarities and his loves, even when the whole world told him to flee. We'll leave this episode with a quote from the man himself. To live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist, that is all. Thank you for listening to Fierce City, telling the tales of our very favourite city in the world and our home, London. If you like our podcast, then please subscribe or write us a review. You can also email us at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch or let us know what topic you'd be interested to hear. 
Fierce City was written and produced by the two voices you have heard. Thanks for listening. 